0: Welcome to a Tuesday edition of Locked On NBA. On today's show, we'll talk about the Celtics' game one win over the Sixers, and if they have a realistic shot to come out of the East.
1: Then we'll talk about new details about why there's tension between Kawhi Leonard and the San Antonio Spurs, and what's next for the Oklahoma City Thunder. It's Locked On NBA. Thank you so much for listening, for subscribing. Now let's get to the show.
0: on the nba part of the locked on podcast network all right let's do this welcome to locked on nba your daily nba podcast my name is wes goldberg i'm a credentialed writer covering the nba for the step back you can find me on twitter at wc goldberg i'm david ramill credentialed
1: nba writer who's covered the league at large for sb nation fan FanSided. you can follow me and my writing on twitter at d ramill 13
0: on today's show, we'll talk about a report that Kawhi Leonard might want to play in a bigger market and if Ty Lue's new starting lineup is enough to defeat the Raptors. But let's start with last night's game in Boston, where the Celtics beat the Sixers 117-101. to Terry Rozier, Jason Tatum, and Al Horford combined for 83 points. Is there a new big three in Boston, David? Uh, I wouldn't go quite that far, but they did
1: look impressive against a rusty Philadelphia team that had been sitting on their hands for six days. Didn't really seem prepared to deal with Boston's intensity, and you gotta give the Celtics a, a tip of the hat because they certainly look pretty impressive against the seventy sixers.
0: Rozier, twenty-nine points, Tatum twenty-eight points, Horford twenty-six points. Terry three sticks, man. He made seven of his nine three pointers in the game, had a couple of really nice dimes. He is just in Kyrie Irving's place, is having a great postseason. He's going he's making himself some money. Um in this postseason, this postseason run that he's having. Between him and the way that Jason Tatum are able to just create shots, not only for themselves, but for others, Um, Tatum is a a really impressive isolation guy. Um, Rozier um, has has taken up the mantle of that starting point guard, that lead scoring guard really well. And then the addition of Marcus Smart uh, can't be overstated because what he brings defensively and just all those kind of winning plays that he's able to make, he had a couple of he had a big offensive rebound at the end of that Philadelphia game when the 76ers were starting to make their run. What they're able to do um, has been really impressive in the face of all these injuries. And look, I, going into the series, I don't know about you, David, but I had the Phil, I, I had the Sixers winning the series. What about you? I
1: thought the their run against Miami made them look like a strong contender to get out of the East. But I mean, it's one of the points that I brought up to you when we were recording Locked On Heat recently was. Whether or not their displays against Miami was more indicative of Philadelphia being good or Miami being bad, after Game One, it's kind of more I think about Miami not necessarily being as good as the Seventy Sixers. Uh, you know, I'm um, clearly that was the case. They were beaten a gentlemanly sweep a sweep by uh, you know four to one, and uh, you know Boston looked very very good, but Philadelphia just. I mean, they just didn't seem prepared for Rozier's speed or the shot making and creating abilities of a number of players, Horford, Tatum and Rozier, Uh, in comparison to Miami, who have such a struggle to generate points, who you have three or four starters or, you know, on a given night, not being able to create their own offense, with the exception of Goran Dragic, who, again, isn't as fast or as athletic as Rozier. You know, there wasn't anybody in that starting lineup who you had to worry about as far as their offensive production. And now Philadelphia just seemed completely overmatched by Boston's ability to create the points for themselves. And uh, they just couldn't match that speed. As good as they looked defensively against Miami, they looked just as poor, couldn't find the right switch. Robert Covington's having a nightmare postseason, to be honest with you. He wasn't particularly good against Dragic. He looked really exposed against Rozier or anybody who was going up against Tatum in particular. I mean, it was just a bad night overall. But, you know, on Philadelphia's side also, they weren't making shots that they were making against Miami. So I assume that things will probably balance out eventually, but uh, Boston looked very impressive, Philadelphia not so much.
0: Yeah, Philadelphia, 5 of 26 from the three-point line. Uh, Robert Covington, who you mentioned, then J.J. Redick, Marco Bellinelli, and Irsan Leosova combined to go 3 of 16 from three-point range. I mean, <laughs> yeah. we know Philadelphia's formula is – Ride Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid. And Embiid had a great game. Embiid scored, what, uh, 31 points on right. on 21 shots. He had 13 rebounds in the game. I mean, he was he was there. And Ben Simmons had a fine game, right? 18 points, 7 rebounds, 6 assists, doing a lot of stuff on defense. Um, but but the formula is you ride those guys and they create shots for those perimeter shooters. Bellinelli and Iliasova have been big off – or they were big midseason acquisitions for them. But when they go 3 of 16 from the line, that's not even including Dario Saric, who's kind of like hit or miss on a game-to-game basis from the three-point range. He was 0 of 4. So you throw Saric in there, that's 3 of 20 from uh, uh, those guys that you typically rely on on a game-to-game basis for that three-point shooting. Boston, on the other hand, they made 48% of their threes. They made 17 of their 35 three-pointers. That's an insane clip. I mean, we can't... I think you're right. I think we're going to expect a regression on both sides. I, I don't think Boston can make 17-35 three-pointers on a game-to-game basis. Granted, they did create a lot of open shots. A lot of those threes were, were open. They were good looks. Um, Philadelphia, they need to dial up the defense a little bit more. Probably weren't ready to go into Boston. They started, uh, they started round one at home against Miami, right? Now they had to start round two on the road against Boston. Um, Philadelphia, sneakily just an average road team during the regular season. Uh, they, they dominated at home. They were 30-11 and 11 at home during the regular season away they were 22 and 19. So they were plus on the road during the regular season, but they were just fine. And and yeah, they they won road games in round 1 against Miami, but a lot of those games were pretty close. And the or at least two of those games were close. The two games that they played in Miami were were relatively close for three quarters. Um, and we saw the difference between when they were at home and on the road. At home they were just dominant. So I think Boston having this home home court advantage is is, is a much bigger deal than I think we were giving them credit for. So did we write Boston off too early in this series?
1: You know, they might still be able to find a way to persevere, to be honest with you. I mean, I don't know that a lot of people had them beating the bucks in the first round, just given Milwaukee's overall level of talent. But Boston just seems to find a way to continue to eke out wins. I mean, whether it's, it's putting a stranglehold on the opponent's offense or just finding ways to generate points. I mean, I don't know that anybody predicted the Terry Rozier renaissance during the playoffs. I mean, that, his performance over the last few weeks has been phenomenal. And although maybe the most diehard of Celtics fans would probably argue that they saw it coming a mile away. I don't know that the rest of us did. And and I think he he's has been phenomenal. Um, and that combination uh, and the way you look a lot of people have been, you know, again, giving credit to Brad Stevens for being able to make the most of this roster. He probably does deserve some of it. But at the same time, uh, shooting 50% from three-point range doesn't seem like that had a lot to do with what Stevens is, has planned out strategically. Like, there's only so many plays you can draw up to create open shots for people. And even Rozier, who, again, as you pointed out, 7 of 9 from three-point range, he was pulling up from wherever the hell he wanted to. That had nothing to do with with Stevens coaching or anything else like that. It's just a phenomenal performance from Boston, whether it's sustainable or not. You know <laughs> At this point, you'd have to say it is, although I, I wouldn't have said so two weeks ago. I, I, My feeling is now that they'll continue to find a way to win. Look, they were without another start in, in Jalen Brown, a versatile player who does a lot for them. Good point. Uh, he's expected back in game two now. Yep. So with his return, I mean, that just adds another piece to our already impressive arsenal there. And another guy um, who
0: can who can guard Ben Simmons, right? I yeah, mean, that's absolutely. What, that's what Boston has is they have multiple guys that they could throw at Ben Simmons. They've got a. A couple of different guys that they could play against Joel Embiid, even though they probably don't have the best matchup, but Al Horford isn't going to be taken advantage of in any sense, right? I mean, you've got Embiid's brute force versus Al Horford's like cerebral approach to the game, and that's kind of interesting. Um, they've yeah. got a big body in Aaron Baines that they throw at him, too. Yeah. Um, Boston had really doubled down on their on their bigs. You remember last year, this time last postseason, uh, Boston couldn't find a, a power forward to play in the playoffs. I mean, they ended up playing Gerald Green at, as a stretch four at some point um they they went out got guys like Baines and marcus morris um jalen brown has taken a step up and he can kind of play all over the floor for you so they they've got a lot of bodies that they could throw at the sixers they play terrific perimeter defense they have all season that's nothing new so i still think philadelphia is going to struggle to get open three point shots um it's just not whether or not marco bellinelli goes goes nuclear and starts making you know falling behind, falling back three point shots from you know 28 feet out um, he's always good, I guess, for one of those games. Yeah. Uh, look, I, I've been, i been... I said this against Milwaukee. I think Boston is much more talented than people are giving them credit for. And, and just so, you know, just kind of piggybacking on what you were talking about there, people were acting like Milwaukee was this team that was so much more talented than Boston. Uh, and, you know, outside of Giannis, I think the teams are basically even. You know, Al Horford is a, a legitimate top 25 NBA player. Like... You know, they they've got score like Jalen Brown was scoring twenty plus points a game. They've got a guy like Jason Tatum, who is so advanced for a rookie as a scorer that, that he he is he's been their go-to scorer when Kyrie Irving has been out. And you look at a guy like Terry Rozier, who's really stepping up, who wasn't just a nobody. This guy was the sixteenth pick in the draft at some point, so um and was and was thought that he could go in the lottery too. He kind of fell in that draft. There's a lot of guys on there's a lot of talent on that Boston team, and Brad Stevens is doing a heck of a job with him. Um that said this is gonna. I think this is still gonna be a close series. I think that Philadelphia came out a lazy, a, a, a tough, tired game one. I do think that they bounce back um, going forward. This is gonna be a really, really, I think, tough series and a really a series that could probably go six or seven games. Um, yeah. to, who did you have going? I had Philadelphia winning the series. Who did you have going? I Remember had this? Philly in six. Yeah, same. I'm thinking maybe Philly in seven now. But if, if it goes seven, if it yeah, goes seven on Boston, yeah, I can't imagine them winning four, in,
1: in yeah. I can't yeah. imagine them winning in Boston for a game seven. That's so that, I mean, that's. Look, I, I look. They could win Game Two, even up the series, go back home, and and then sweep the Celtics there, uh, and and certainly have the ball in their favor. Uh, you know, but at the same time, uh, Boston could continue to to play well. I mean, it, I think Jalen Brown could have bad games offensively, um, and maybe his defense, as versatile as he is defensively, maybe he's not as rugged a defender as Marcus Smart. You know, maybe a guy who who is much more about. You know, pissing off an opponent, kind of getting in their face and disrupting what an offense can do. So I wonder whether or not maybe they're better suited having you know not having Brown in the lineup. You know, so that's it's it's going to be an interesting question. I think I think Smart is more. I don't know. It's a tough one. I
0: Is is do you having see both of them having both of them's is not going to hurt. I guess yeah yeah no and Jalen Brown's that. three point shooting should really help too, especially if you're if you're looking to sort of in you know maintain that three point shooting clip. But um. Well, let me
1: ask one, one quick question, though. Like, this matchup, obviously, is about the future of the Eastern Conference between both of these teams, Boston and Philadelphia. They're further ahead than a lot of people expected. For a team like the Celtics in particular, without their star Kyrie Irving and having lost Gordon Hayward at the start of the season, their future, I mean, if they are able to do anything out of this year, it's, its a, a, you know, the cherry on top. But it's all about the future for them. If If Boston gets past Philadelphia... Do you still give the Celtics the nod as far as having the brighter future? Because I think a lot of people were ready to give that
0: title to Philadelphia. But maybe Boston might be the better team in the future. Boston's certainly the deeper team with a lot more stuff. And they've got they've got draft picks just like Philly does. Um, actually, but they have more draft picks than Philly does because the Sixers moved a, an extra pick to get Fultz. Yes. Uh, so I still like Boston just because in the next couple of years, because they've got guys who are ready now. Kyrie, Gordon Hayward. Tatum and Brown look like they're ready to contribute right, right now uh, to a championship-level yeah. team. So I, I'd probably have them for like two years, but then going forward, who, I mean, it's, hard, it's harder to predict what happens with guys like Simmons and Embiid later on. Um, yeah. John Gonzalez at The Ringer actually wrote a really good piece about comparing those Sixers teams to those early OKC teams that had Harden, Westbrook, and Durant. And it's just like, mm-hmm. yeah, they make one finals run when they're young, and then all of a sudden it's the last time you see them in that, on that kind of stage, and then just stuff happens. Um, but that both teams I think are going to be I think Philadelphia still has a higher ceiling just because the guys that they have Simmons and Embiid could just be better than anybody I think Boston has but um, yeah. it's a great question it's gonna be a, it, it's a, this is a really great uh, glimpse into what basically the future of the Eastern Conference could be um, let's move on and, and take, a, take a look at some new reporting coming out of San Antonio about the Kawhi Leonard saga uh, but first quick reminder to make sure that you're subscribed to Locked On NBA to get the podcast every day. Think of it as your bite-sized briefing for the most important stories around the league, and keep it here for daily updates on everything going on in the NBA playoffs. So subscribe to Locked On NBA on iTunes or your favorite podcasting app, the Locked On Podcast Network, your team, every day. So the Thunder are out of the playoffs. We'll talk about what that means for them and for, for Russell Westbrook specifically. Uh, but first, let's let's go into this ESPN report about Ongoing tensions between Kawhi Leonard and the San Antonio Spurs, and kind of the headline, the thing that people the blogs are taking out of this, so to speak, David, is that Kawhi and his camp, his his the people around him might be angling to move him out of San Antonio and into a bigger market. They mentioned Los Angeles, New York, Philadelphia. I mean, look, I'm not gonna there's no way to know what what's true and what's not anymore. I mean, there's so many questions going on with this Kawhi Leonard thing. There's so many different reports and stuff going on, but one thing you can't one thing we do know here is that Kawhi has recently gotten new representation, and he is, at the very least, questioning his role within the San Antonio, the San Antonio Spurs machine, right?
1: Yes. Yeah, I think that's fair. Look, fantastic reporting from Ramona Shelburne and Michael C. Wright of ESPN. <laughs> Wright is a dedicated reporter for the Spurs, and and he's been on it, uh, you know, kind of the behind-the-scenes glimpse that a lot of reporters have. And, and I think that's the issue, too, is that, you know, we haven't really been able to know what's been going on because the Spurs are a, a very well-known, tight-lipped organization. Not a lot leaks out from their front office. Obviously, uh, Leonard is known for his reticence. He's not exactly the most verbal person in the world. But they they did a really good job of kind of digging around, trying to find out what's going on. And, and ultimately, it does come back to Kawhi's inner injury, and how the Spurs handled that injury. And and again, as you pointed out, Leonard's new representation kind of having a disagreement with how the Spurs wanted to handle it. And from there, things have kind of spiraled out of control. So basically, the injury, the question about the injury is whether or not it might be a thigh injury, as we presumed early on, or it might be a tendon ish- uh, injury. And if that's the case, how they're treated is very different. And uh, the, the issue is, you know, Kawhi tried to come back, still felt pain. Kind of challenged the Spurs doctors who have been handling the injuries early on and then sought a second response or a second opinion from somebody else outside of that. In New York, he actually met with a team doctor or somebody affiliated with the 76ers. So there's added intrigue there as far as him possibly flirting with other organizations and franchises there. I don't know that there's much to it. But again, the reality is that he's seeking another opinion because he doesn't trust the Spurs doctors and the way they've handled it. And now there's also the added thing about his new representatives. Wait, I
0: want to— I want to I want to stop you because I I, don't, I want to I want to talk about that the injury a little bit more before we move on, but okay. you talked about how they're treating the injury. It's either a muscle issue or a tendon issue, and and the Spurs believe one thing, and Kawhi and his can't believe another. And and there's a piece in that in that story. There's a part of it that really kind of goes into it, and I'm just going to read it here. Uh, the Spurs have always called the injury quadriceps tendinopathy which is a disease of the tendon that has a degenerative effect on the muscle by keeping it at a constant state of exhaustion. Um, in another part, they say that um, Leonard's camp thinks uh, that the issue has more to do with ossification or hardening in the area where the muscle has been repeatedly bruised and then an atrophy, which has in turn affected the tendons connecting the muscle to the knee. So the Spurs think that the muscle basically in in, in his thigh is... Is basically ge- degenerating, right? It is in a constant state of uh, exhaustion, and so he can't work it out. And then the 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 S- Leonard's camp thinks it has to do with the tendon in 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 the uh, that connects the th- the the quad to the knee, which is a whole other thing. So either you're worrying about the muscles or you're worrying about the tendon. And and the the cherry on top of this whole thing is that they don't know how to treat it. Because you have to treat them both different ways, whichever one that is. And so the question now is Kawhi Leonard's future, regardless if it's in San Antonio, Philadelphia, New York, Los Angeles, wherever, is is he going to be even the same player that he was prior to this injury? Because to me, you know, I think Spurs fans keep thinking about, well, are we even going to have Kawhi Leonard this time next season? But for me, I, is Kawhi Leonard even going to be the same player he was this time last season? Is the biggest question.
1: Yeah, on the surface any deal that they might entertain, you would think that they would get like a a whole treasure trove of of players and assets or whatever in order to make up for the loss of a superstar like Kawhi. But I I wonder, given what we just saw this past offseason with with Isaiah Isaiah Thomas and to a lesser extent Kyrie Irving, um, although you couldn't have predicted what was going to happen with Kyrie, the infection that took place there and why he required surgery. Isaiah Thomas, I think, is going to be kind of uh, an example that a lot of people will look to when you make that trade, you know, it it could be a disastrous one. If you're going to give up, look, let's say Philadelphia is one of the potential suitors. You and I were talking before we started recording about potential trade packages for him, maybe including, you know, Dario Saric, maybe Markel Fultz, maybe throw in Robert Covington, who would theoretically be displaced by Kawhi Leonard Mm -hmm. in the starting lineup. You're giving up three young core pieces there in the hopes of getting superstar Kawhi and he may never reach those levels again. So that certainly puts a, a dark cloud over any kind of proceedings this summer. Um, but but I, I I think we can take from this that there is definitely tension between the organization. Like that's the whole oh. thing is that, you know, back and forth over the course of the regular season, you know, people argued, no, there's no tension. No, there's nothing there. There's no smoke. There's no fire. Clearly there have been over the last the Spurs, few
0: months. The Spurs came out and said there's nothing there. It's overblown. They can't, they cannot say that anymore. They're, this has clearly been an issue. There's, San Antonio can't credibly come out and say there's nothing, um, and people believe it. I mean, there is seriously something here. Now, Greg Popovich, to his credit, did—there was some tension between him and, and the, the organization and LaMarcus Aldridge going on last summer. They had a conversation. They sat down and hashed it out. LaMarcus Aldridge was about to demand a trade, and they hashed it out, and LaMarcus Aldridge has had an all-NBA-type season. But this is much—and and people have made that comparison before, but this is way beyond whatever that was, Right. This is, yeah. this is a whole other game right now. Um, but yeah. let's, let's move on to this, this uh, Zach Lowe piece about Russell Westbrook um, and the idea that he has to change how he plays and the Thunder have to change their offense in order to cr- reach new heights, right? We all know the story. The Thunder, uh, Russell Westbrook went out after Kevin Durant left for Golden State, had an MVP uh, season last season. They go out, they add Paul George, they add Carmelo Anthony, they basically win three more games in the regular season or whatever it was. Uh, they don't get they don't get any further in the playoffs, and and now the future of the Thunder is is in question. Does Paul George stay? Does he go to Los Angeles? Uh, what do they do with Carmelo Anthony? What's it, what's Melo's role on the team? But the 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 center of the whole thing is the guy that they actually have under contract uh, in the long term, and that's Russell Westbrook. Do you think? And the idea of Zach Lowe's piece was the Thunder cannot be better, regardless of what superstars you put around him, unless Russell Westbrook changes, and the Thunder changes well. What do you, do you think that the Thunder... Do you think that Russell Westbrook's game is conducive to a championship-level team? Do you think that they can get better than where they are, or are they just sort of stuck where they are as long as Westbrook is playing this way?
1: It's an interesting question, because I think it's one that we wouldn't even ask if Carmelo Anthony has a better shooting series. Like, his hmm. performance, I think, on the surface was the one that was the worst, because there were just runs there that they couldn't capitalize on that I think Carmelo seriously endangered because of his erratic shooting. But at the same time, I see your overall point. I, I think you can form a championship contender, but you have to have such high caliber co-stars alongside Westbrook that it makes it nearly impossible. Like, like Kevin Durant and James Harden. Yeah. <laughs> yes. that certainly would <laughs> work or even a young Sergey Ibaka, who was only, you know, a, <laughs> a role player at the time, but certainly a versatile one that added a lot to their defense and offense on, on occasion. So, I mean, Westbrook, look, I, I I didn't have an actual vote in the MVP race last year, but I really did think that he was the MVP last season because of his overall usage, because he was such an intrinsic part to Oklahoma City's success. Um, you know, I think their cast, the surrounding cast wasn't nearly as good as they were this year. I mean, Demonte Sabonis was starting as a rookie. Victor Oladipo was not the player that he became in Indiana, as you well chronicled in your piece a couple of weeks ago. I mean, he, he transformed himself for the summer. So I think Westbrook's, you know, performance last year was him just going absolutely nuclear, as you said earlier. I mean, just absolutely controlling every aspect of the game. And that's why I thought he was the very definition of the team's most valuable player. But he does take bad shots, and, and that's never going to change. And, and that's a, a severe problem is that you have to have it's not that he just doesn't create shots for others, it's the kind of shots he creates. He's not a creative passer, really. He, he drives to the hoop, creates a, you know, draws a double team and can dish it off to an opener, an open man, you know, or is cutting to the rim right. or maybe somebody along the perimeter. Um, he's not the best at creating plays for others, even though you can look at those high assist totals and say, oh, clearly he does. Yes, but a lot of those is rim running um, by Steve
0: Adams or somebody along those lines, right? Or, or a drive and kick, a very simple thing. I mean, uh, Lowe points out that like, yeah, Westbrook ha- he'll put up ten to twelve assists per game, no problem. But very rarely does he actually see the floor in a way that he can he can launch an entire series of passes in the way like LeBron James does, and right. and he and he quotes the. Uh, or he adds that that stat that the Thunder always last in the league in total passes made. It's just yes. calls it an annual tradition, which I thought was great. But um, look, Russell Westbrook, you're right. I don't think he's he's 29 right now. I mean, we think of Westbrook as, as a, a lot of people as a young guy, this young athletic guy, who, because he is so ridiculously athletic because he jumps out of the gym and just makes you say "Wow" so many times. You kind of just look at him as like this guy who's like in his at his peak, 26, 27. He's he's gonna be 30 in November. I mean this is not a guy if he loses his athleticism even a little bit he goes from being one of the top 10 players in the league to he can he could drop a lot like if if he loses yeah. even a little bit like his whole thing is based on just his ridiculous athleticism he's not a good shooter like you said he's not a great he's not a great playmaker he is a guy who just he he just creates so much gravity around him. And he's, and
1: a, he's a horrific defender, let's you know, be he, honest here. He's just I mean, a lazy, uh,
0: horrific defender, and that's not going to get better if he gets a step slower. So, right. you know, I think Westbrook, for his own sake, you know, just for his own longevity, needs to figure out ways to, to smarten up his game because he's going to have the three in front of his age now. And at some point, he's got to get little pieces of that old man game. And I don't know where that comes from. It has to... You know, it starts with taking less bad long twos, right? Um, He needs to start using his teammates uh, more advantageously. And he needs to pick up a few moves here and there, start to understand the game a little bit more. And look, a lot easier said than done, but, you know, I think the model is out there for him, at least right now, for the Thunder. Uh, If you look at... Go ahead.
1: No, you know, all this is that we're assuming that his ultimate goal is to win a championship. And he says it publicly all the time. You know, I'm all about winning. Winning is the only thing that matters to him. You know, the few words he delivers when he's being interviewed post games is that it's all about winning for him. But the evidence points to exactly the contrary. Like he, everything he does on the floor is not about winning because he takes bad shots. He doesn't help teammates. He doesn't do enough.
0: Unless he thinks that that, is more of a that is a better he has a the thunder of a better chance of him winning shooting than that's Alex the case Sabrina, than, than than they do if Alex Abrines is shooting and look I you can't necessarily argue like if Melo to, to your point earlier if Melo is shooting like garbage and Paul George is is having a good quarter every once in a while from three point range you can't really argue with that I mean who else is going to shoot on that team it's just it seems like like I, I I do feel like you know him being a high usage player, there's a there's a model that works, and we're seeing it in Houston, and we especially last year with Houston before they got Chris Paul, and we see, we're seeing it right now in the playoffs with LeBron, basically just yes. him barreling to the basket and, and driving and kicking to a bunch of three point shooters. But Low points this out as well. LeBron and Harden are going to do they're going to do that better than Westbrook can, even if you yeah. surround Westbrook with the same exact cast that they have that those teams have. You put Westbrook in Harden's place. The Rockets are better with Harden because he is just a smarter basketball player who can, who can leverage the talents of, around him better than a guy like Westbrook can. So how far can you actually get if you do put that model in place? That, like, that model would probably make the Thunder better right now, but it wouldn't make them a championship contender. So they've got a lot of questions, um, and uh, it's going to be interesting to see what happens there, especially the can summer they move with Carmelo? George and Melo. Yeah, I think they could move Melo it's going is to be Paul hard They're not going to get any value out of them. They're not going to get the value that they sent out. Like they're not even going yeah. to get an Ennis Canner type. Probably. Um, no. is Paul George resign? No, he's gone. Yeah. I think he's gone.
1: Yeah. It's fair. Can you imagine after you make this huge trade, all becomes an all-star, the mon- you know, Sabonis becomes a pretty solid role player. And all you're stuck with is, is uh, you know, the, Carmelo's 20 something million dollar. Style. If, you're the
0: th- if, if, if the thunder have a shooting guard on the market, I go get him. Because it either, he either becomes James Harden or Victor Oladipo. So if they're willing to trade a shooting guard, I'll go get him. So if anybody's willing to take Andre Roberson, Andre Roberson two years is going to be Kawhi Leonard. I mean, at this rate. So I'm joking for people that don't understand my sense of humor. <laughs> uh, next up, let's, uh, we'll look at tonight's playoff games. We've got two of them. Uh, but first, don't forget that in addition to the daily Locked On NBA show, the Locked On Podcast Network also has a daily show for your favorite NBA team. Maybe it's the Miami Heat. In that case, David and I host Locked On Heat every day. So go ahead and subscribe to your team's channel on iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. By subscribing to both On NBA and your favorite team show, you'll be covered with everything that you need to know. The Lockdown Podcast Network, your team every day. Okay, so let's look at tonight's games, and we'll start in Toronto, where the Cavs are taking on the Raptors in Game 1 of their series. Uh, Cleveland switched up their starting lineup in Game 7 against the Pacers. Now, you know, LeBron James is the one who ultimately ended up winning that series. But Ty Lue did change his starting lineup. Threw in Tristan Thompson, played LeBron at point guard. So they had a lineup of Tristan Thompson, Kevin Love, J.R. Smith, Kyle Korver, and LeBron James. Is that new starting lineup going to be enough to help the Cavs get out of the East? Because it didn't look good for them before that.
1: Yeah, I, I don't know. Like To me, I, 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 we're starting to look at these changes he makes, these tweaks he makes. And, and while they could be reflective of innovation on his end, the reality is it always boils down uh, to LeBron James. And so I really think it has very little to do with the starting lineup. We'll see it tonight in action. If Toronto manages to blow them out or get a big win, then all of a sudden it doesn't really matter, uh, you know, who's starting alongside LeBron. It's just, it's all about trying to get the most out of him on a nightly basis. And look, he still wound up having to play, what was it? I don't know, the whole game in game seven against Indiana. Outside of those
0: three minutes he rested with a cramp. Yeah, he played the entire game.
1: I mean, he is the centerpiece of that team. Uh, That's the way he prefers it, I think. And, uh, you know, I think that it really doesn't matter who's playing alongside him. Either he goes—he decides to go nuclear or not. I think that the
0: addition of Tristan Thompson helped them in that Game 7 because he just— Look, if you're putting LeBron with a bunch of shooters in there, you still got to have somebody that screens for him. Well, and Mm -hmm. Kevin Love is a nice pick-and-pop threat, but he's not not as good as a screener as Tristan Thompson is. Um, not as a physical, dedicated screener as, as Thompson is, and having somebody to roll with, with LeBron, it, it helps just to suck in the defense a little bit more, and then play yeah. Kevin Love at the four, and he could still hit threes for you, um, and then just the other things that he does—the rebounding, the hustle plays that Tristan Thompson has—is why they signed him to that extension in the first place. It be, is because those were the sort of things that he did in 2016 when they almost they they were within two games of winning that championship that that year over the Warriors. Um, but Tristan Thompson is only that every once in a while now. Uh, yeah. And so, you know, you kind of run the risk of, okay, you put Tristan Thompson in the starting lineup. How often are you getting Game 7 Tristan Thompson, who is fine? At the end of the day, he's just fine. Like, but he, he does understand how to set a screen for LeBron better than anybody else on that roster. He, there's a cadence there between those two, um, and I think it helps. To me, the, the, the key was playing LeBron at point guard and just not worrying about having a Jordan Clarkson or a George Hill or a Jose Calderon on the floor, who all three of them have been defensive nightmares. I mean, George Hill has yeah. his reputation as a defensive player. He's not a good defensive player. Hasn't been in three years, uh, at the very least. And so... maybe um, hey, we saw that in Utah. I, I kind of have to disagree with it. Uh, in Utah, he wasn't the... Like, they're better with Rubio defensively. You know, That's I fair. think Utah's just a good defensive team. I, thought, I didn't think it was necessarily with George Hill. But either way, um, the, the key was having LeBron just, like, kind of shaking this whole point-forward thing and just, like, kind of having, like, the pseudo-guard on the on the floor all the time and just being like, you know what, we don't need that. Let's just put a bunch of length, let's put a bunch of sh- a real shooting around him and just play LeBron at the point. Kind of like what the Sixers are doing with Ben Simmons. And that worked. And I think that was... I think that's helping them. And then playing Tristan Thompson there to actually have a semblance of rim protection is helpful. Um, take Kevin Love out of the paint a little bit and let him run around the floor uh, and do what he does well. So... I think it's going to help. I just don't know if it's going to be enough to beat Toronto because, look, the Raptors are deep. And, and what, what eventually ended Indiana's postseason run was the fact that it was Victor Oladipo or bust. And, and Toronto has, not, has Kyle Lowry and DeMar DeRozan, two guys who can score in bunches, and they have a deep bench who can come off and, and take advantage of Cleveland's bench, especially in those non, non-LeBron minutes. I think that's yeah. going to be a, a major point. Um, but the big question for Toronto who, is who guards LeBron? And during the regular season, it was OJ uh, Anunoby. So they've got they've got OG. They've got Scalabis or not Um uh, Pascal Siakam. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the scal is what messes me up there. They've got two guys who can guard LeBron. What? Who do you? So number one, do you think it's OG who who guards LeBron? Yes. And, and you do. Yeah,
1: yeah. Okay. I think Anunoby starts on him, um, and and you know Casey. I talked to him about Anunoby earlier this season, and he told me that one of the things he likes about the rookie is that he busts through screens better than anybody he's been around. So Mm -hmm. to, you know, to your point about Tristan Thompson, maybe a guy like an NAB who's, you know, got a superior length, really good athleticism, even as a young rookie, he might be able to get around those Tristan Thompson screens and still be able to make things a little bit more difficult for LeBron. The reality is, you know LeBron James is who he is for a reason, and he's going to be able to get his points. But if you can challenge him, make things difficult for him, make it less easy for him to create opportunities for others, especially a team that hasn't always been able to step up in those occasions, maybe Toronto has a much better chance. So I, I like uh, Anunoby's ability to do so, and I like Siakam as well. I mean, he's certainly got the athleticism and the length. Um, you know, he's been underrated throughout the playoffs. So I think he's, he provides a really nice boost for them off the bench as part of. Yeah, you know, that that deep reserve unit, he's he's a, a big key f- component of that. Um, so I, I'm curious to see how he handles LeBron, that is, how he, he handles both of those matchups. Because I think uh, Toronto might actually have the edge there. I mean, LeBron's going to have his points regardless, but it, Toronto can continue to make things difficult for him. So I, I like the way that they are able to match up with James.
0: I think that the Raptors only have to do, they, if they play as well as they did during the regular season, right? Mm-hmm. And they have the edge in this series, because I I, I constantly find myself talking myself into Cleveland. I, can't, I I tell myself things like, well, they got LeBron. How could you bet against LeBron? And it's like, well, watch that first series against the Pacers. They like, could have easily won LeBron game-winner sh- less, and they, and they lose that series. Um, Good point. And, or you, you could even argue maybe if a goaltending call goes one way or the other, they lose the series. Yeah, and, definitely. Um. I just, I keep talking, I'm like, well, they got LeBron, they got this new starting lineup, and and you kind of just talk yourself into it. But if the Raptors just play like they did during the regular season, which is, you know, they go 9 or 10 deep, their bench takes advantage of the other team's bench, and they just, they move the ball well, and that's been the problem with the Raptors this whole time, too, is that, you know, in the postseason, they don't necessarily play like they do in the regular season. And so, we've got some questions. Cleveland, they typically amp it up in the playoffs. Toronto, they typically amp it down in the playoffs, so... It's going to be a good series, but let's move on to uh, uh, Game Two in in Oakland, where the Warriors have a one zero lead over the Pelicans. Uh, New Orleans getting blown out in Game One; they just were not ready for the juggernaut that is the Warriors. Uh, do you think that the Pelicans can uh, bounce back from that Game One, or was that an exception? Do you think that what we saw? Do you think we'll see more of that team that we saw sweep the, the Portland Trailblazers, or is this, or or have the Pelicans just basically met? Met there, met the adult, the adults <laughs> in the room, and it's just it's over now. I, I think it's more to the latter. Mm. Uh, I mean,
1: you know, maybe they can regain some of their edge back in New Orleans, but playing in Golden State against a superior team with Steph Curry returning to the lineup, I mean, uh, I, I, I think the Warriors just have the edge. To be honest with you, I, I just think they're too good, and 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 they find a way to mitigate anything. That New Orleans can do, uh, you know, they're putting the the playoff Rondo to 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 bed. I think uh, they've ended that kind of theory. Um, they were able to limit Drew Holiday, who had been so spectacular against Portland. They took Meredith completely out of the game. Yeah. I mean, all the things that that had worked so well for New Orleans against Portland, <laughs> Golden State just wiped them out. And I think this just goes to show that Golden State continues to be the most impressive team in the, in the you know in the playoffs. I mean. It's going to be an interesting challenge with Houston, but I don't think New Orleans can match up with them at all.
0: You know, I think um, Gentry is going to have to make some some adjustments. I'm not ready to write off the Pelicans just yet. I mean, I don't think they win the series, but I'm not really ready to say it's going to be a sweep and every game is going to be a reflection of Game 1. I think that the games are going to get a little bit closer. Um, I don't think that having... I, they, Anthony Davis is going to have a big game. These, Anthony Davis by himself could probably win them a game in this series, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know about all the. Uh, they're gonna, he'll get him close. You know, he's yeah. Gonna, I he's mean, gonna I gonna mean have that might be by design. At some point. That but, might be by design
1: to let him get his points while yeah. shutting down everybody else.
0: He's really, but he's really good. So he I is, think he's, he's going to get. He's he'll get them into the, into. He'll he'll make it close. There'll be a close game. It'll be because Anthony Davis is going to put up like fifty and twenty or something crazy. Like I just. I feel like that game is coming, and we haven't obviously gotten it after one. Uh, Drew Holiday just running around screens uh, is much different than what he had to do against Portland in Game 1, where basically he was just trapping pick-and-rolls. The Warriors don't run nearly as many pick-and-rolls. They hardly run them at all. And so instead, he was basically running—he was chasing Klay Thompson around the court, which kind of neutralized Drew Holiday. I think that having Miritich guard Durant is not something that is sustainable— no, so I think Gentry is going to have to make some adjustments. I think he's going to make adju- adjustments. I actually prefer Holiday against Durant. Um, you just sort of you force Durant into into shooting jumpers over him, um, which he's very good at. But I mean, he's going to do that over anybody, even over Miritich. He did it several times over Miritich. So if he's going to jump over, if he's going to shoot over somebody, it doesn't really matter how tall they are. Um, but Holiday might have a better job of sort of. If you, I, I feel like Holiday is a better defender in one on one in isolation situations, which is what Durant specializes in, as opposed to just having him run around the floor and just chase Clay Thompson around, which again just sort of neutralizes his talents. So I think there's some adjustments that the Pelicans could make, but at the end of the day, if the Warriors are going to get Curry back, it doesn't even matter because having Durant in there in the first place was an, like that was the one thing Portland didn't have. They don't have anybody on the wing who can just sort of be that release valve, and that was. Durant was able to take advantage of New Orleans' lack of wing uh, uh, perimeter defenders and perimeter scoring because they can't match up right. on either end with that. And, so, but if, and then you throw Curry in the mix, and I think this thing is over. I just I think New Orleans will look – does that make sense? I think New Orleans will still lose this series pretty handily, but they will look better doing it.
1: Well, you can expect Gentry and his familiarity with the Warriors to kind of uh, you know, help them make the kind of adjustments they might need to make it competitive, which is something they weren't able to do in game one. Uh but at the same time, does it really matter? I mean, if it's if you you know, coming in close is your goal, maybe they'll achieve that, but I don't think they find a way to win more than one game.
0: All right. Well, we'll find out tonight. Um I think they'll win one game in the series. That's that's probably about it. Um, But that's that's all we have for today. You can subscribe to Locked on NBA on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. We'll be back next Tuesday. You can find us on Locked on Heat in the meantime. John Corrales and Jake Madison got you on Locked on NBA tomorrow. Thank you for listening. Thanks for joining me, David.
1: You got it, Wes.